Hi, I'm Cy Kernan and you're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and joining me today, uh, I like to call it the Zoom Room, is my very special guest. You know him best as the lead singer from The Fix. Please welcome Cy Kernan. How you doing, Cy? Good, Pat. Nice to be here. Uh, so let me ask you first, because we're under, uh, you know, we're under quarantine. We're staying inside. Who are you quarantining with? Are you alone? Or are you with people? I'm quarantining with my family. Okay. I have my longtime partner of uh, seven years, Patricia, who's uh, been my sanity. (laughs) And we have three kids, three boys, ranging from 18, uh, about to turn 14, and a 12-year-old with us. Wow. And all all the kids are there with you? They are. They well, they have some time that they go with their father. Two of them go with their okay. father. Okay. The time they're uh, with us, and they keep us sane too, keeping us going. You know. How are their spirits with? Because uh, you know it's tough for kids to to stay inside. You, you and I might just uh, curl up with a book and be fine. Right. Actually, they're doing really well. They've been um, they've been homeschooling their whole child careers, if you like. Oh, okay. So, there you go. You know, just started school last. September. And so they were going through and then suddenly they slammed into this. Um, one of them is faring a little less well than the other. The younger one was really good at making friends. Yeah. The other one is so self-contained. He didn't seem to really need friends. So he's doing okay. Okay. But right now they're kind of playing the gathering and magic and, uh, reading a lot, funny enough, which at that age, I definitely wasn't a reader, but no. he's really reading, you know, so that's excellent. It. Yeah, I think, you know, they've just made the best of it. And we're realizing that every human being on the world is going through the same moment. Right. And so whatever traction you get or whatever dissolves or fall apart, falls apart from, you know, our identity as human beings in 2020 is very different now than it was at the turn of the year. Absolutely, it is. What part of California are you in? I'm in, I'm in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and where are you? You're northern? Yeah, yeah I'm in Santa Cruz. And how long have you been uh, in the States? How long have you lived here? Well, I've lived on and off since 1983. Okay. Um, I'm a green card holder. I've been here. You know, I first landed on the success of The Fix and picked New York as the sort of mad town that I wanted to live in. And I spent 16, 18 really crazy years there. Then I moved back to Europe for 12 years. And then now I've come back to the West Coast, which didn't really connect with me when I was younger, but it has now. Well, you got some color. You look like a West Coast guy now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I bike on the cliffs every day. There's, you know, this kind of lockdown thing has taught me that you've got to exercise your body to keep your mind going. So I try and get out for a couple of hours every day along the cliffs, mm-hmm. in the ocean. And um, there's, there's still places where you can be very much alone up here. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I bought this thing. This counts my steps for the day. So, uh, and I just yeah. got this during the quarantine. So, uh, 
I'm trying to get out there and do things too. Yeah, it's addictive, right? How many steps have I done today? Oh, it is. You like I have to get it. Like if I don't get uh, ten thousand or more, it's it's a disappointing day. So I'm just like I got to get it. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> it keeps you on track. It does. All right, yeah, exactly. you have a new solo album called Lockdown. Now, yeah. I'm assuming the title uh, is on purpose because we're. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, I was sitting there. I, think I was had a collection of songs that I'd written over the last two years. Some of them were written right as this pandemic was hit, hitting, but most of them seemed to, I kind of recognized uh, something about these songs that fit this moment. And so I decided to just on a whim, throw them out. Oh, through DistroKid, which is this great new way of being able to just put out music directly streamed yeah and uh, it wasn't really about making pressing up cds at that point it was just getting the music out for people to listen to because i was seeing lots of people doing free shows online on their phones and i was thinking yeah that's okay but i want people to hear the the kind of studio quality of the music so i figured that this is my way of giving something to uh, just give people something to listen to, I guess. And you know, it's funny when I contacted you, I didn't even know you had a new studio album out. So this, this works perfectly. So yeah, I, I, mean, I just out there joining a kind of a little collection of solo albums yeah. that I have. Yeah. You have five of them right now. I do. Yeah. That's uh that's amazing. I mean, the fix I think has 10 albums. You have half of that in solo work. So good for yeah. you on staying creative and uh, yeah. still having a, I assume a love for making music. Yeah, I mean, it's all I do. I really, you know, from the age of, as a kid, I used to play truant, not to go out, but to come home because I knew my parents were at work and I could play the piano without anybody there. And the the voices would come through and the, the uh, feeling of catharsis was, I didn't know what that meant at that age, but I just felt good. And that stayed with me. I haven't really changed since I was eight. It's just, <laughs> to, just like an antenna. <laughs> you sound like the, the most well-behaved child in the world, a kid who skipped school just to come home to sing and play piano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty weird. But I mean, maybe there were a few days when I would sneak off down the local pond. But um, <laughs> the music was, it, it had me. Um, and I, I used to kind of had this uncle who died very young. It was my dad's brother and... Uncle Jeff, his name was, and he used to come and visit and play these really amazing chords. He would play organ in the church and mm -hmm. the piano in the house. He would just show me these intonations where they just kind of like cracked something open inside of me. And then he died when I was around eight. And I just managed to grab maybe three or four chords of his passing. And I always felt that he kind of has been using me as his musical conduit. Mm -hmm. And I've kept that mantra of when somebody dies, they give you their, they give you a gift, mm -hmm. they give you their potential. And so I've kind of flown that as a flag and it's driven me through um, all the crap that I've managed to amass in my life. So you knew the basics on the piano, but then your uncle would come in and he, he was a little bit more schooled than you were at that age, but you picked up on, on these chords that he, uh, that he would yeah. do. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I guess we were connected to the same mm -hmm. family. So all they were Irish kids, and they just had that Irish sense of, you know, there's a certain note that makes you cry when you hear Irish music, <laughs> the romantic yeah. failings of humanity. And he had that, and it was 
it wasn't so much writing and reading, it was just a feeling. And he showed me that I could find it in me. Excellent. Um, my dad wasn't very much a, a music player, but he was definitely an avid listener. He'd be always be bombarding us with all kinds of music around the house. So that was pretty much it. Yeah. So there's a, yeah, that's like how, that's how I am here. I, I don't play any instruments, but I'm playing music all the time, but you had a piano at home. So who else played that piano? Both sisters. Okay. My, my eldest sister played it and she was really good and went on to almost go and study jazz at music college. But my parents put so much pressure on her to go and become an academic that she gave up and she regretted that her whole life caused a lot of crap between them. Yeah. But what my sister did for me was like, I'm not going to let you waste your chance. So she came back for me when I was 14 and introduced me to Adam Woods, who's still the drummer in the fix today. Absolutely. And uh, we hit it off and they were dating and they invited me to go and see their band playing and so i'd go and see that so wait you stole your sister's drummer that's it he married he married the wrong member of the family (laughs) so i kind of went to see their band and was obnoxious and said they were good but i thought their songs were terrible so i kind of pushed my way in and they kind of accommodated my upstart um nature i guess and Mm -hmm. just on my way and we realized we had something again he's from an irish family and uh, he kind of recognized the mining of the soul thing, maybe. Yeah. It made us feel something more than just kids in a crappy world. And we bonded. And we just, he had the drive and showed me how to, every time somebody in that band left, we would have to audition for new people. And every time we'd audition, we'd have to be more serious about ourselves. And <laughs> join us. So that's how it kind of gained impetus. And then, you know, we went through a couple of incarnations as an early band, had a deal with a German company called Ariola. But it wasn't really until Jamie Westorum walked in for an audition from, for a guitarist that the sound of the fix clicked. And, that, and I realized, you know, it was a, another string to that sound that we were looking for, yeah. just, a, just a note or a, something and we just went whoa and that was it yeah jamie has a very distinctive tone with his guitar you can definitely when you hear it you definitely know oh that's that's the fix yeah and it's he's that sound is his also his soul he's a very unique human being and he he fitted perfectly with the kind of madness or sanity that we were searching for and let me ask you this your your parents were not were not on board with your sister uh in music, were they on board with you doing it or also no? No, I guess, you know, they were so, they, you know, wartime adolescents, they'd struggle. They both were academics. My dad went to Cambridge, mm-hmm. my mother was, you know, high end French student studying French literature. They were like convinced that that was how we were going to be able to make our way in this world. So mm-hmm. I don't really blame them then. Sure. But they didn't, they didn't recognize this talent which came from maybe overconfidence that they didn't have so they couldn't understand it and they they fought tooth and nail and i ended up having to just leave the family house when uh-huh. i was 17 and you know, find my own way classic story you know? yeah i didn't really hook up with them until i showed them the first dollar i'd made yes <laughs> and at that point they they understood that there was a way to make a 
a life. So, and so once success happened, then they, they embraced it and they were, they were on board. Yeah, they were. Yeah. It was like six years later. So it was a right. little tough on them having a kind of a, an errant son. But for me, it was great. I just had to live on my own, live on my wits and yeah. just didn't ask anybody for anything except. I think know, just. I think that's how you make it because you 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 have to make it in life while you're trying to make it, it as a career in music and um, good for you. Now with yeah. your with your own kids, you then must be open to anything that they might want to do in life. I am, yeah. and the, the strange irony there is the more open you are with your kids, the more kind of <laughs> right, and you know the more security they're looking for. Yeah. Maybe they you brought them up with this kind of real sense of security. Right. And so they, they kind of look for things that are, I would say that my kids, except for my daughter, who's 17, I, but we have nine kids between us. By the oh way. my, so, nine kids. We're a Brady bunch. You know, I have. I Congratulations. Have Thank you. A 35 year old son who's um, grandfather with him. Um, we have 34 year old daughter who is two times grandparent through that. So, we have some lineage. Um, well, I've lost my thread, but the fact of the matter is that the kids, my kids, blood kids, took after their mothers much more because they were the secure anchor gotcha. in a relationship where there was this wild gypsy urge. And, you know, I, I couldn't keep still. And I'm not claiming that I was ever the best uh, parent in any way. And to father a child takes just a few glorious seconds but looking back who they are now my relationships with them are amazing um and i don't know whether that's me just blowing smoke up my own butt to mm -hmm. sort of make hay from the pain of their having an absent father or something i don't know but it's a really great thing i feel like i'm still 18 and they're happy that i'm doing what i love to do they understand now why i had to go that way so they celebrate that and they're proud of that. But had I given up then, they might have seen a miserable guy who'd like whatever I would have done, maybe self-destructed or something. Right. So, you know, it's a tough thing to try and parent and bring kids up. I don't know how much you nature or nurture, how much you are supposed to um, hold them close. You know, when you look at nature, it's a lot raw it's a lot tougher and so and i'm not claiming that it's a win-win but that's how it's worked out for me with high insight i'm not proud of it but i'm really enjoying it well here's what's great you are not uh you didn't you didn't figure it out when you were 80 or 90 you're still a young man and you look fantastic by the way i'm holding up <laughs> <laughs> yes you are holding up so it's good that you you figured it out now and you're still young enough to enjoy it yeah which is great I think that's the good thing. I think, you know, life has a celebratory thing without banging your own drum, but it's all about relationships mm -hmm. with people around you. And if you can be honest, the gorillas just, you let them go, they leave the room and they go to the jungle where they belong. Well, let me ask you about lockdown. It, 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 it almost feels like an unintentional concept album. Yeah, very much so because I was like confined. Um, I couldn't get a gig. There were no gigs no touring till 2021 and i suddenly thought about humanity trying to grow and maybe the things that were inspiring me to write those songs there was a 
a rage. There was a kind of a, a darkness to it. And sometimes the thing about humanity is that it can really underwhelm you. You know, we have personal victories every day and you want to share them with the world, but then you see the world just kind of going backwards in so many ways because the model is broken. Yeah. Nobody's brave enough to say, you know, you can't do it. You can't suddenly turn this huge ship around in a decade. This is going to take many decades for people to grasp the next footing for compromise and all, all that stuff. Yeah. So this is going on, you know, the political split, the, the schizophrenia that people were suffering in society. So that was that was my lockdown statement. So the concept behind that was just trying to dip in and out of some catharsis. And I know fit my fans were kind of would get me. They know they know kind of my lineage in words. So maybe they'd find a I'm in, I've been listening to this uh all weekend and I'm enjoying it very much. Tell us about the first track, Dinosaurs. I, I really this is a good way to start the album. I love it. Like dinosaurs staring at a meteor, not understanding that less is more and the Nero is ending. Like dodo birds, we're smiling at the final blow, no one dares to mention. Absurdity of the situation. I think we owe it now to one another. We can't survive if we won't be bothered. Yeah, it was just a simple little. Uh ditty that I was playing at the piano around the, the room and it just kept haunting me that we're behaving like, you know, there's this extinction of dinosaurs and we're staring at these on, this oncoming light of a meteor, just basically the opening verse. I just felt that unless we find some community, we won't have the, the dialogue to use the real intelligence that we have, which is very, very powerful to get out of it. We're kind of denying our intelligence right now because, well, our leaders aren't proving to be the brightest kids in the class. Right. You know, so that's it. That's where that song came from and uh, just a little kind of warning. And I, I, I wanted to keep it close as in the room where I was, little drum machine, little kind of vibe to the, to the 80s. And is this, is this all you on this album, uh, writing, producing? Are you playing all the instruments? Yeah, well... I've been working the last couple of years with um, a big social media platform to put together songs. So they were they were providing um, funds for me to record. Okay. And so here in Santa Cruz, I was able to put together a little outfit um, of a, a drummer and a bass player who's also the engineer, and he does the mixing. But I was writing all this stuff at home in a kind of confined way. And then I would take it to the studio and we would blow it up into kind of get some air around the sounds. So it is a, it is a collaboration in that way. The irony being when you have a solo album, there's just as many people involved in the making of it really. I'm not too much of a 
I mean, I enjoy the technical nature of music and uh, what you can do, which proof that you can make these albums at home cheaply. But at the same time, I always miss the, I like the drummer to be listening to the song whilst he's playing. Right. Know the lyrics and lay into it or the bass player. Because if you're just using loops, they're just like a blank face, which is right. what you see society and that irritates me. it's it's uh, it's more it's sterile if it's uh, yeah. if it's loops and things like that yeah, exactly so you know i want that connection so i did that and um i managed to write 105 songs in two years for this social <laughs> and in that the is end, that did, is that's great that's like bruce springsteen type songwriting yeah it was been an amazing process to get my chops up to get my writing up to get my ears listening to conversations, to just look at the world, some kind of inspiration. And so there's been a fantastic um, process. There's, it's called the Facebook Sound Collection, where they built just a huge collection of music. Okay. And basically, it's there to um, encourage anyone who wants to put music on their own Facebook platform for whatever reason. It's copyright free that we own the copyrights they own the copyrights but we get all the earnings from it that's how it works okay and so um it was a good deal that i was able to get paid before releasing the stuff and then that's always good yeah then they turned around and said now you can go and release it the way you want it i was like wow so you just start putting all these little albums together um but i'm only allowed to stream this stuff okay under the under the present deal so that's led me now as I've just recorded a little EP that is that I can put out as a hard copy because what I noticed when I did release this streamed only album, people were like, where's the hard copy? Where's yeah, the hard copy? We still like the physical copies, yeah. but yeah, I, I bought it digitally. That's how I purchased it. So yeah. Yeah. Fixed fans are very much, they want touchy feely things. And yes. You CDs behind you there. That's the, what I want to do. The album cover artwork is terrific. It's really cool. And yeah. your voice is still so good. On the song Last Night on the Planet, you just sound excellent. I love that one. Last night on the planet, firing the final rockets, gravity no longer holds me. Through dark nights of radio static, pilot set to automatic, one last look back at my world. I realized the dream wasn't what we had or what we'd been. One step behind our nature, turning out of sync. Doubtful prophets, we were sages with no alibis. A short-lived story with the end in our eyes. Vengeful brothers, we were brought down by our appetites. Sugar wishes for designer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's just the power of uh, the voice is to more, more, the gratitude is gratitude. I'm so grateful to still be able to do what I love. Mm -hmm. And it takes care of me. People always say, how do you take care of your voice? I said, no, no. I said, my voice takes care of me. That's, and, I like that. That's a good sentiment. Yeah, and it's the fact, because if I lose that, I know how depressed I would be and how shut down. That would be the real lockdown for me to yeah. not be able to sing. 
And so I do everything I can to keep that going, you know. Well, you know, I used to smoke, used to drink, used to do all the things that you're not supposed to do. Now I kind of can't get away with it, so I have to stop all the partying just to keep the voice going. Right. It's a small price to pay, honestly, to be able to sing every day. Yeah, and when you go see a band, if the... I always say this, if, if one of the other members of the band makes a mistake, I'm not really going to know that. But if the singer's not on point, I, I'm going to know. Yeah, so, so your yeah. fans appreciate it too, that you're, that you're keeping your voice up. Yeah. I mean, it, I like to be able to sing in tune too. It's, it's just as easy to sing the right note. Yeah. <laughs> sing the wrong note. If you can't sing in tune, maybe you should think about getting another gig. <laughs> Let me, uh, let me talk about The Fix. The band is still Adam Woods on drums, uh, Rupert on keyboards, Jamie on guitar, and Dan on bass. Yeah. And where are these gentlemen at in the world currently? You're in Santa Cruz. Where, where would these guys be? They're all in and around Southeast England. Okay. Uh, uh, Adam is in London, uh, who's running a, a bike shop that has exploded through the again with the lockdown and the pandemic everybody's riding bikes everyone's everyone's yeah exactly he's like busier than he's ever been with that um jamie has been tutoring for some years now at a acm music college teaches music theory when he's not playing on the road okay enjoys that uh rupert has been making music with jerry marotta and a few other people up in woodstock putting stuff out okay excellent Danny has been doing kind of sessions with various people in London. He plays tuba. He plays bass. He does a lot of little weird things on the side. But our main connection is this um, this band that has... The last album, Beautiful Friction, was produced by a young Canadian guy called Nick Jackson who has built a studio in his in his backyard, basically, in London. And that's, that's our headquarters... We record there, we rehearse there, we write there, and we have this younger sixth member of the band who kind of helps us to go, dude, you're up your own ass there. <laughs> dude, you know, that's too long. Go take that, you know, so we have that feedback. Well, you brought it. You brought up Beautiful Friction, so I have to tell you, uh, this is my favorite Fix album. Yeah, mine I, too. I, um, I write reviews for, for a website, and... Uh, when that album came out, it, it just appeared in my mailbox. I didn't request it. It just appeared and, and I, and I opened it and I'm like, Oh, a new fix album. And then it kind of, it, it, to be honest, it just kind of set on my shelf for like quite a few weeks. And then finally I'm just, Oh, I, I, I guess I should listen to this and see what's going on. Yeah. And I was blown away. Uh-huh. I, I, I absolutely could not believe how great this album is. I mean, it's perfectly sequenced anyone else is like the greatest opener of all time. You know we'll read When will we 
I love it so much. So yeah. it's a thrill for me when, uh, when bands I loved in the eighties can still put out solid work and you guys, you guys did. And I hope, uh, I hope there's more fix albums in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, it was a, not a tough record to make, but we made it over seven years and there were a lot of songs that we put to the side. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think we wrote over 40 songs because we had the luxury of time to do it. Yeah. So, but, and again, with filtering and songs with just, they grow with you, you know, when you don't have the pressure of a release date, you can listen to a song. And if six months later, it's still drawing you in and you just kind of, that that's pretty much how we did that. Um, when we wrote it in three distinct different stages, so it wasn't so much a journalistic mm-hmm. approach. It was about one period in time. It was about personally for me. It was about three different journeys. You know, one where I was climbing up Everest with a charity group. The next thing was getting divorced and leaving Europe, and the third part was falling in love and landing in Santa Cruz. So that was the backdrop. And then as the band was touring, we were starting to tour more and more. So we were looking for songs that would, you know, get the engine revving on stage. And so it kind of designed itself that way. Other highlights for me on this album, just before Dawn, Second Time Around, and and Take a Risk. These songs just, they kick ass. Well, I can't let go of habits that control me. Yeah, Jamie was on fire with that. I mean, I always look to him for those take a risk and follow that cab kind of like he's, you know, old school needle bleeding guitarist when he wants to be. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And, he, and when I, you know, when we need the adrenaline to pump, he's the go to kind of drug. It's I think when people think of the fix, they they, they might not think of, of guitar shredding, but I mean, he can really yeah. play. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, and I was lucky enough, I saw you guys perform down uh, here at the Canyon Club in Agora Hills with this oh, album. Yeah. And you guys, uh, you, you just great. Like I you, love that. Like you didn't miss a step. Yeah, I love that gig. When, uh, when you write 40 songs for the, uh, an album like Beautiful Friction and you go to record the next album, do you go back to those ones that didn't make the album or do you start fresh? Not fresh. Never go back. So the so there's tons of songs written that we will never will never see the light of day. Well, I don't know. We may look at them in a time frame and put them on some kind of B release, mm-hmm. some you know something for the fans. I know it. Um, I mean, I like to listen to them by surprise and go, "Oh, it's not as bad as I thought." <laughs> right we on the record, but generally, after a, there's some reason or not why the, maybe in the concept of the whole thing it didn't work, they may see the light of day. Is We've it? Been, 
writing more stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we do have a new album in the can. And you we're do. Just, we're kind of waiting to see how the record company wants to no- navigate this period because yeah. there are people releasing records that don't get the attention that it should or there's you can't back it up with a tour with a tour right with beautiful friction was getting out and being able to play this new album is such an exhilarating thing because the fans are dying for something new yeah i think so i mean a lot of people say when they go to see a, a concert and bands play a new song they tune out but then they're not fans because i i perk up when you guys play something new yeah exactly i mean you can't play the whole album and you do have to kind of put it into a framework of your whole catalog but it's really the, the important pivot it's how you put a new spin on the old songs Carl. exactly and it keeps it keeps you guys uh vital on stage because if you have to go out there and just play the same 12 songs not that those songs are bad but you guys need something to keep the fire inside of you guys going also yeah, exactly. i mean but the last time i checked we do this for us first yeah and that hasn't that hasn't died it's not a business for us this is like a uh, driven soul it's your passion i said at the beginning that fire to get something out I mean, i still to this day believe that i'm just we're just an aerial for this energy in the universe that is choosing to come out in mm-hmm. the form of music and connect in a way that nothing else connects people in the same way as music does and i'm just very grateful yeah. to have been picked <laughs> to do that this is a this this is a weird time with the lockdown because th- there's no new movies or, or anything like that. And music is tricky because you could release music, but like you said, you can't go out and tour with it. Like the new pretenders album is fantastic, yep. but they can't tour on it. But we, you know, you don't have to leave your house to buy music anymore. Right. What are, what are you listening to right now? Is there anything that you're into? Well, yeah, let me just see the last, I mean, I'm downloading stuff all the time, but, I can't even remember. Let me just pitch up my, I'll tell you what I'm, I just downloaded a load of, like, um, Hosier is what I've been listening to a lot. All right. Suddenly we were watching this silly movie with, um, well, it was not, it was, it was Tarzan movie. Mm-hmm. They had this Hosier track at the very end. And I was like, I, what a brilliant song that is. <clears throat> I kind of missed it. It was outside of that Take Me to Church song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty old school, but that's what I've been listening to lately. And then there's that Michael Kiwanua as well as the other guy. I don't, I don't know him, but I'll, I'll check yeah, that out. Um, I was downloading that just because he's the poet of the, of the ages for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really enjoy his alliteration. And his, it's not that his voice has gone crusty because it always was crusty, but there's a wisdom to it. It's like finding an old bottle of brandy that has only improved with age at the back of your cabinet right. and you sip on it and it gives you a huge head. That's what Bob Dylan is doing for me with that album. But, um, but you can't sip on the brandy now, Sai, because that's going to hurt your voice. So yeah, yeah. That. That's why I have to be. It's audio brandy only now. <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to uh, pass along condolences on um, the passing of Rupert Hine because he was so instrumental in those first four fix albums. I mean, I'm assuming he was instrumental. Was he, was he like the sixth member of the band? Yeah, absolutely. Without Rupert, I don't think we would have made a dent. Um, at the time we were like scratching our brains, how to get noticed, you know, 
you didn't really want to dress up like everybody was dressing up mm-hmm. in the early 80s. You know, it was very fashion-based and to try and get the five of us to have one look was just impossible. <laughs> right. We, we looked like Frankenstein as an image. Yeah, you guys are a little bit of a motley crew when we look at you as a band, but yeah. uh, but that's yeah. okay. That's okay. So we, we met this guy who suggested that we just send our latest tapes to producers that we thought might work because that was another way of getting into the record companies mm-hmm. that we did. And we were able to get Rupert Hines' address from somewhere and we sent it to, to him and we actually heard back from him quite quickly. And the reason being was that Rupert was using his lady, who was Jeanette Obstoy at the time, who'd been lyricist for him for ages, and she recognized something in the music or the writing at the time that she said, Rupert, you should go and check these guys out. And long story short, he came down and we we hit it off as human beings, firstly. Mm -hmm. And he really was into the spatial sound. He recognized Jamie's talents. He kind of recognized Rupert's work on synthesizers primarily because that's what Rupert was about. And then he also recognized the sort of lyrical aspect of things. So he took us into the studio pretty quickly and we recorded uh, Lost Plains. It's the first song we ever recorded with him. And it grew from there. He was huge. He taught us how to just blast out the dust or get rid of, you know, sometimes when you're writing music, you can have your own little favorite thing that you're doing that just doesn't allow the clarity of the whole song to work. And the name of his production company was Gestalt, some of the parts. Yeah. So he taught us to blast through this crystal wind, I call it, through every track that really came alive in the studio and with Steve Taylor, the engineer who very powerful set of ears was able to create this aura that our music thrived in. Yeah. It was almost a Petri dish for the experiment of the fix to really grow in. And I always felt that we had a night sky and it's again, searching for those otherworldly size to our existence was he the last line of defense? Like if he would, if he would give you guys a note, would you, would you fight him on it if you didn't agree with it? Or would you just, did you just go with the flow and just do what he would suggest? Yeah, it was, he was never that kind of guy. He was, he would bring out what was there, the best of us. Oh, okay. More like a shrink. (laughs) Uh, He had no definite instruction because he was always afraid of making a sound like, the last thing he'd worked with. He just he just brought out what we were. And he had a real gift for that. And he had a really great way of expressing it. 
that made you feel like a bazillion dollars, you know? Yeah. And that's, so. that's a key thing with producers because sometimes a producer can make different bands sound the same or sound similar. So to let him, let you guys just be you, that's important. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I always wanted to work with Todd Rundgren because he was one of my huge inspirations. I love Todd Rundgren. He's like it in terms of music for me. But then I've heard some pretty weird stories about his production style that kind of make me wonder, Mm -hmm. had I kind of pushed and pushed and pushed to get Todd to be our producer, it may have like deviated things. And whilst we were sleeping, he'd have been in the studio replacing all the parts or something. Yeah. I mean, I have, I've heard, you know, cheap trick album, Sean Cassidy, the tubes. And sometimes when Todd produces it, it can sound like utopia. It can sound yeah. like his pan utopia, but, um, but I do love, I do love the records that he produces and I do. He's, yeah. he's pretty great. Yeah. Um, is. So, uh, 82, the first, uh, the first long player shuttered room comes out. It, it only goes to 106 on the charts here in the U.S. And yeah. I don't, that, that was shocking when I read this because if you would have just asked me, I would have been, oh, that was a top 10 album, right? Because yeah. you guys were getting a lot of airplay on MTV with uh, Stand or Fall. You know what happened? It was politics. And so we we had this album that was recorded by MCA England. Okay. And we were touring it there. And we just started to get some traction in the English scene. Then the record company managed to get it released in America. And we had huge success in alternative radio in Boston. Okay. A guy called Oedipus was a, a radio programmer who spotted the song Lost Planes. And he had a radio station, WBCN, which is very pivotal to early um, early alternative rock music, I guess. He nailed it. And we sold pretty much that 100,000 albums in Boston. In Boston. <laughs> and so during this time, there was a guy called Roman who was the promotions guy who was pushing so much for us within it, the MCA USA. Thing. And then all of a sudden, the whole... A business end of MCA US got fired and so on that day like Thanksgiving 82 we were on the road and then in comes Irving Azoff with all his guys and he summoned the English guy Stuart Watson from the record company and said Stuart out of all the acts you've got on your label what are the ones I I should be paying attention to here because there's a lot of good stuff coming out of England what do we got 
And Stuart said, well, we've signed this band, The Fix, that did some, made some noise with blah, blah, blah. And so they could see, yeah. made a little blip. And, he, and so he told us, end the tour, go home and give me a record that I can work. He didn't seem to want to pick up on someone else's dirty laundry or something. He wanted fresh, clean sheet. So on that tour, we were actually playing half of the Reach the Beach album because there's an album out called The King Biscuit Flower Hour that you'll hear on that a lot of the early versions of Reach the Beach songs. Before before they were released in studio versions, there were some yeah. live versions out there. Exactly. So we went back and put Reach the Beach together pretty quickly and it was released in April or May uh, 1983. Three, yeah. And so, so you're saying they, the record company was able to show Irving Stand or Fall and Red Skies, let him yeah. hear them or see the videos. How did you feel about when, when you have to stop the tour? You guys are probably having fun and now. Yeah, having fun, but it was our first big overseas tour. Okay. You know, I wasn't even, I was, I think I was married maybe. I had a long time girlfriend. Yeah, we, I was married. Didn't even bother calling home for three weeks. So by that time, it was so much fun that it was time to go home for personal reasons yeah. too. We didn't quite know how to handle the, curvature of the earth when you're in a spaceship called rock and roll gotcha so we ended up going back and pulled it together and then record this this new record so it was, it was good to cut it short it was it was cold i can remember sitting in on in cleveland on a some pier and eating king crab leg called captain frank that was the, was the name of the place and that's where we first heard that we were going home again and we just finished playing the agora in cleveland oh wow famous gig the first time i saw you guys was obviously on mtv with stand or fall and red skies and uh and again shocked that these two songs didn't chart higher like yeah. uh, for, in your catalog those are two of your hits they are but, they're they're, huge, but they've stayed around i mean a yes. lot of people think stand or fall is probably the like you know it was like ding dong doorbell fix at the door right and uh in a way what was happening with radio, there was MTV, which was kind of championing more alternative radio stations mm -hmm. around the country. AOR was trying to get hip into this new decade. And so they both clung onto us. And so we were getting a ton, a ton of airplay, but there was a confused, it was like a mixed message. Right. 
And so people kind of just heard us so much, probably they didn't need to go out and buy the record. <laughs> and I know a few people did, and Shuttered Room caught up. I mean, over the years, it sold almost as many as Reached the Beach. Mm-hmm. It never really got in the, in the sort of, didn't ring the bell at the fairground. Yeah. It's the one big punch. The videos you guys made, I, they kind of hold up. I mean, you guys didn't do anything that you should be embarrassed by. You know what I mean? Like a lot of bands look back at their videos and they're just like, why did yeah. we do that? Why did we agree to do that? But you guys, yeah. I think, are, are, are your videos are pretty cool. They, you know, they, they show the band, but they're not, there's nothing embarrassing that I, I'm seeing. Uh, yeah, we pretty wise. I mean, the white sweater in Stand or Fall, I would have picked another <laughs> color, but that, that was Jeanette Obstroy, the lady who kind of told Rupert to come and check yes. us out. She directed those early videos for us on a shoestring. This is before the record companies were used to paying a ton of money. I mean, the first video cost as much as the food bill did on the last video that we made. I bet. <laughs> yes, yeah, ridiculous. I'm turn around. How much money do we need to throw at this? Back then, there was, in, especially in the UK, there wasn't a ton of budget put aside for a video. So she had been making TV shows and um, had a good artistic knowledge and she was pretty cool she was very um she wasn't easily impressed and she had a really good way of taking the storyline of a song and putting it maybe slightly outside of the true meaning but giving it a sort of an an analogous element so the enigma of the song just keeps going it sounds like she's very instrumental in getting the fix uh well signed and seen Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, she was my mentor in many ways, like early demos, reach the beach. She'd be like, no, no, so I just think about what the word you're trying to say this. How could you say that better? The rhythm's off. Think about this. Look, look at it the way I know. I'm the audience here. What are you trying to say? Where are you going? And so she would push me, keep pushing me and pushing me. It wasn't a comfortable experience many times, but I really thank her. And she stayed very close. I mean, she's passed away. Mm -hmm piece but um she had an insight to the creative process that you never compromise and you never if you've got a demon thrashing around in your head you want to keep it going you don't don't let it out of your sight until it's done with you wow i love it if you just bore your demons to death you'll just be another typical you know flat liner well that's that's the kind of person you want to have in your corner excellent yeah, yeah. Okay, so reach the beach. A lot of times a band is afraid that there's going to be a sophomore slump, but not for you guys. Reach the beach, I mean, that's a sophomore surge. It's yeah. It's like uh it's still to date your biggest album. Yeah. And uh the artwork, the cover artwork by George Underwood, who he also did Phantoms and Calm Animals and, and Beautiful Friction. It's it's perfect. It's so Good. You see that album and you're just like, hey, what is this? You got to yeah. pick it up. You got to look at it. So, genius, um, genius strong yeah. that was. Yeah. You know how that came about, George Underwood? When I was a kid, had Ziggy Stardust album cover. Mm-hmm. Used to look at that cover and I'd turn around and go, who did that? It would be George Underwood. And I always used to say to myself, if ever I make it, I'm going to have that guy make an album cover for us. I think he, and I think he did hunky dory. I think he did that album cover too. He was all over those. Yeah. He starred us the thing, you know, that kind of zany guy backstreet. And cause that was my London. Yeah. He, oh, he was pitching. And then I was like, Whoa. And so it happened. 
And we just sent him the music and left him alone to his own interpretation. Mm -hmm. And he came up with that. That's the phase of his art, artistic life that he was at then. And he was just so nailed the color thing and the title reached the beach. All the kids are going off to the beach for summer, spring break. It was a no brainer. Yeah, And the album's released in May, the start of summer. So it's all, yeah. everything is, everything's aligning to make this a hit album. And yeah. it, go, it goes to number eight, Saved yeah. by Zero. That's the first single, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And that gets, uh, it's a top 40 hit. Goes to number 20 in the U.S. Yeah. Such a great I mean, tune. Say by zero. That's a song that I've learned what the meaning is mm -hmm. more now than then. Then it was one of those messages that came through that I had a feeling of how it was to me, but then I saw the connection of how that song has stayed alive and been very much um, the connection between many of our fans. Um, I wrote that after my first manager took me to see the Dalai Lama at the Commonwealth Institute in London. And, you know, I saw the light shining out of this guy's presence and he was talking about happiness is not money. Happiness is this, you know, pain is 90% of your life. Happiness is the, and I was like, oh. so I was like wanting to get rid of all these things. And so it was saved by zero was my, yeah, I'm going to be saved when I've got nothing, nowhere to go except up or in. Or, and so I was able to coin that. And that's what it was for me. Mm-hmm. And out it goes into the world and bounces around and starts to connect. And it's connected with a lot of people now. And I, I've actually had the chance to sing it for the Dalai Lama on his 80th birthday down at Irvine when he does those uh, things. So that song is, that's like my prayer from, and I'm not a religious person. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm more spiritual. And, yeah. Say. So that song is the, confirmation in lots of ways i will take uh, spirituality over organized religion uh, any day of the week so good yeah. for you uh, yeah. uh and then one thing leads to another number one in the u.s Shots. 
as a kid in the UK, is the US like the golden apple? That's what you want. It was me. And it was because a lot of the bands we were listening to were American. I mean, it was Bowie and I'd be watching him go over there. But Jamie was really into Quicksilver and Tom Verlaine, New York Dolls. And then I was really interested to this guy, Lou Reed, Todd Rundgren. A lot of my heroes were American. You know, I was a little, just a little too young. I mean, I understood. I preferred the Stones over the Beatles just because mm-hmm. they made me feel like a little bit more. Ugh. Yeah. Looking back, John Lennon was a hero, and then he went off to America. Everybody seemed to be going off to this wonderland, this paradise of music. And then there was it was just an aura to the place that just seemed that wild maverick freedom. I wanted some of that. Well, you got some of it with uh, yeah. with one yeah. thing leads to another. That's that's probably the signature song, right? You you can't step on stage anymore and not sing that song. You've got yeah. to sing that song. Yeah. And luckily, it is what it says. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the wheel turning. And one thing, wherever you get in the moment, it's the moment. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I love singing that song because Jamie and I have a, a thing. We will never play the same thing exactly the same way ever. So we'll do one note or a little nuance or a timing. <laughs> thing. Just and for you. Yeah, just for us. And we'll still do it to this day. We never run out because we know it's infinite. <laughs> and I'm in the audience. I don't know you're doing this, but you two can look at each other. Yeah, and, like, uh, oh, I know you did it. <laughs> it's the same with his solos. He's the one who started it because his solos are never the same. Like, he does deeper and deeper. We have this song which comes later. But Was it a fool's he plays that solo is different every night and i've been on stage with thousands and thousands of times and i've never heard the same solo twice and it's like mind-boggling so as a singer i'm like okay i'm gonna spar with you on that and then you get another then you get another top 40 hit with the sign of fire
this album just keeps going. You, Irving Azov comes in. You got Rupert Hine. Uh, you have your mentor. Like you guys are just, it's you're firing on all cylinders at this point. Yeah, this, this is success is happening for sure. Yeah, very much so. And then didn't quite know what was going on really as a personally. We you know we were well protected from the madness of it, but mm-hmm. you can only be protected so much before you want to go and self-inflict <laughs> and join in with some of the madness. And so we did. And I remember coming to San Francisco for the first time and walking off with a bag of mushrooms the size of my suitcase. <laughs> no. And that, that completely transformed what the synchronicity tour was with, mm. with the police. We were playing to, you know, 80,000 people. You were, you guys were open. You were the opening band on that tour. Yeah, we were. And so we played to like a million and a half people in six weeks. And I was just trying to get to the zero source. You know, I was, right. I was high, not high in terms of, uh, down i was so up because i am propensity for manic manic behavior so i was just really manic at that point didn't sleep didn't need to sleep for weeks and just high as a kite and then when i came home people said you need to sleep dude yeah you need to chill out a little bit yeah so that's (laughs) so all these things and now we can add to it that you're opening for at that time what was the biggest band in the world the police Yeah. yeah That's and and how were they to tour with? Were they uh, were they gracious and accommodating? Did they enjoy what you guys were doing? Yeah, they were great. Really, real sweet. I can remember sitting down with uh, Sting, and he'd be like talking about Saved by Zero, and he was reading Carl Jung at the time. He was like, "Hey, this book's really much what your song's about, isn't it?" I was like, "Yeah, kind of is." And they had every breath you take, number one, and we yeah. were coming right behind it. We were at number four when we had that conversation. So it was like kind of a, you know, I get a little shy around people because I still see them as being big stars and I'm just little old me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a little uh, weird there, but. But you're on the, you're on the charts with them. You, you guys were peers. Yeah. But it doesn't feel that way when it's actually happening to you. Yeah. You just, you're learning the ropes and you feel like a little young whippersnapper. I did anyway. Uh, but Stuart Copeland was the real, guy I bonded with because his brother Ian Copeland was our agent and so I would have time to hang out with because Ian was my uh, buddy of mine okay friend and so I got to hang out with Stuart more than anything I was just amazed by his drumming style more than anything uh yeah I was I was lucky enough to have Stuart on the show and he invited me to his home to record and uh that was uh that was quite a thrill I mean uh I'm not his peer, so I was like blown away by uh, his generosity. But uh, yeah, yeah, he's a full-on. I mean, that that um, intelligence that they have, and that the, all the family, they were like that. Boom, boom. Yeah, super in your face. <laughs> They're. I think they call that intense. Intense. Yeah, there you go. That's what I call it too, actually. Let's move on to Tina Turner, Private Dancer, real quick. Let's, yeah. You are in the You Better Be Good to Me video. Okay. 
Yeah, go figure. And uh, I just watched this today. You're 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 barefoot. You're doing some uh, some thrusting type uh, dance moves. Yeah. And uh, what was what was this like? I know Rupert produced two songs. He produced the what's the title? I might have been Queen. Yeah, which sounds very much like a fixed song. Yeah, it does. Because Rupert and Jamie were co-writers on that. Yeah. That's a great song. And you sing background vocals on that song. It kind of happened so fast. We were we were at the studio, Rupert's studio, recording our album. I think we were doing um, Phantoms at that point. Yeah. And uh, Rupert had to take a week off to do this Tina Turner session that had been set up by uh, Roger Davis, her manager. He came in and it was like, hey, Sai, you want to sing backing vocals on these? I was like, yeah, you know. Tina's seen sitting at the back of the room singing louder than I am, and I'm right on the mic. That one was force of nature. So you were in the room together. That was my next yeah, question. We were, yeah. Okay. We, we spent a week together. She's very, very sweet, um, but very powerful. You know, she's a, at the time I was just discovering about Buddhism, and she was really a few miles down the road in those in that discipline. So I was able to pick her brains on quite a few things, and. Um, so long story short, that album comes out, flies up the charts, and then we were just about to go off to Australia on a tour or something, and somebody said, hey, you want to be in the video? And I was like, sure, thinking it was just going to be in London. Right. Okay, where do we have to be? Oh, you got to be in L.A. tomorrow. I was like, well, so fly on the plane. This is rock star <laughs> stuff. Yeah, and the guy that had done the video had made Say by Zero video for okay. us, Brian Grant, so we're in there. Right, there's a choreographer. Do you want to do some dancing? So Tony Basil is this choreographer who turns up. I'm not going. I'm not doing that. I'm just going to do my own shit. Thanks very much. <laughs> he wanders off, and I just start doing whatever I could. I right. thought I'll, I'll be barefoot because I didn't like my shoes for dancing in. But <laughs> I didn't realize 18 hours later that my feet would be raw, and so I was begging the crew for some white substance just and they were like oh rock and roll and i said no this is on my feet guys <laughs> I'm putting it on my feet and then we finished it and then flew back it was all a bit of a whir but and then i came back and started laughing at myself when i saw the video it's but, pretty cool it's a it's a pivotal point in your career and it's also 
she's been around forever, but this is a, this is a pivotal point in her career too. Cause this yeah. is a, uh, Tina Turner's always been here, but this is the big, big comeback. Yeah. It was a huge moment to be part of. And yeah. It was, was, again, gratitude, real gratitude there. Um, and uh, nervous or intimidated uh, to be around Tina or was she just, uh, was she just great to work with? She's great to work with real, real genuine soul. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't really know that much about her personal life, but when the movie came out about her, I can Tina Turner, I was like, Whoa, yeah. she not only is a survivor. She's like really carved her way through something that well back at that time with without internet and everything you didn't know about every single person's personal life uh, you know every waking minute so yeah you just didn't know yeah exactly though we as english we'd known of her more than here because she was actually a bigger presence in yes up to that point and she was in the states yeah she actually had to break back in in the states it's crazy Uh, unbelievable legendary um So 1984, Phantoms, Rupert Hines still producing. You have big success with Reach the Beach. Is there any pressure from the label to produce, or are they just letting you guys go and, and do what you do? It kind of, there was pressure because we had a release date. And um, like and I it, say, coming off of the back of that Reach the Beach high, mm-hmm. personal lives had changed immensely. You know, like whatever was back home, when we left, reached the beach, it was very different when we got back. In, so, in what way? Um, relationships had okay. fallen apart. Okay. Uh, living circumstances had fallen apart. We had grown up as a band. We'd become a unit. But nothing was getting in. We were in, you know, impenetrable. We'd gone through this bonding experience. And so you, you, it was better than a marriage because we didn't have to sleep with each other. And it was, we learned about each other and we were there for each other in a way that no one else could understand because we went going through the same thing. A band of brothers, so to speak. Exactly. And so we, we all had this kind of joy, but there was a darkness to it, which is why we called it Phantoms. Because mm-hmm. I kind of felt I was left, it was an out-of-body experience, pretty much. And so the song Phantom Living kind of sums that up. Phantom living A ghost before my eyes A picture feeling Someone roams my life Sets up in the air at night Steers me round to mother Turns the search into A pair of learning eyes looking at your past life, looking at who you are now. And then, you know, that kind of pretty much sums it up. A lot of times you hear that after a successful album, money hasn't been made yet by the band. Were you guys making money at that point? 
you know, there was a regular wage. We decided early on that when we got our advances, we were going to just pay ourselves a monthly wage out of it. And so we just kept that going. The money was going in. And then it was just the wages were going up a little bit. And we were, if you wanted a holiday, we could just, somebody would give you an air ticket and you didn't have to pay for it kind of thing. Yeah. That's really smart. Yeah. Who, who, who came up with that? Which member of the band is the, is the money person that, that figured this out? Well, it, it was a good short term thing. But in the long term, it was a little kind of a bit of a personal train wreck for us. <laughs> okay. There's tax to be paid on these different Yes. Ways, yes. You know, and the way that publishing deals are signed is some people have more of the publishing than others. And we tried to flatten the curve and it just wouldn't let us flatten the curve. Okay. There were personal, one social security number against this amount of income that they don't care what you do with it after you've got it. Yeah. It's so, only, it's only locked into that number. Yeah. It's locked in. Okay. So there was a lot of that, that we didn't even know how to, you know, had to think that way. So there was no money wizard. Okay. But we got by. And we survived it and we learned early on that it was never going to be about money. Sure. We just wanted to keep the boat afloat so that we could keep writing and keep making music. And, you know, we're still here. So it's worked. It has worked. We've been through some storms. Now, with here's what, here's what I always wondered about record companies. Couldn't they have continued to work, reach the beach for another six months or so without, you know, a release date for a new album? You know what I'm saying? Couldn't you guys have continued to tour? Did after the police tour, did you do did you do headline dates? Yeah, we did. But you're right. We had um, a manager called Luke O'Reilly who was he'd been Al Stewart's kind of wizard guy through the 70s, and he understood the live world. Okay. We had our main manager was an English guy who was more looking at the change in in us as people, Mm -hmm. and. Seriously, after like a year on the road with the Reach the Beach thing, <clears throat> excuse me, 18 months, we were like, whoa, especially, you know, it was starting to catch up. I needed more than a night's sleep. Yeah. And so I had this manager, Luke O'Reilly, the guy in the live said, you've got to go around another year, another year. And the other guy's going, no, I don't think they could take it. They're going <laughs> to blow up. So we came off the road and wrote Phantoms whilst we were convalescing, if you like. And uh, we should have. We should have been men about it. We should have gone around more. <clears throat> I shouldn't have been such a feeble, you know, easy target for certain things. But I was, and mm-hmm. it happened. And you know, no regrets. But there were definitely uh, splits in the road where we could have made a better choice. Yeah, and that's definitely one of them. We should have gone around the rest of the world for a year because by the time Phantoms was coming out, Reach the Beach hadn't even arrived. So it kind of like yeah. Took took the edge off of the power of that record to compensate with what were the releases on phantoms. And those singles weren't quite as iconic. So we, we, we mixed messages, different flags, you yeah. know, Hey, a new flag for this year. And how, how old are you at this point? 82, um, 83. I'm 25. Well, it's, it's hard to navigate anything. Even at 25 at that point, you're not, yeah, I mean you're then, you're a, you're a grown up, you're an adult, but in many ways you're still, yeah, not especially. I'm sure when when you're in your world, yeah, there's a lot of arrested development. And perfect, <laughs> Just, perfect. Yeah, so yeah, so, so yeah. Phantoms, uh, yeah, it goes to number nineteen. It kicks off with a great a great song, Loose Face. 
so good. Yeah. It was a little sort of heady, maybe. Mm-hmm. It was it was definitely a personal thing. You've got to just become, you know, more than just the thing that people see you as. So I was asking people to not just see themselves as just the face you present. It's, it's who you are inside, so searching for this identity that mm-hmm. suddenly fame thrusts a kind of a weird identity on you that you haven't had any time to to understand unless it's a, I don't know, maybe a wise author could cast his life out there that it's all him and people understand him and him as him. But in music, it's very much as to the time you're in and how people see you and how how it's marketed and how they hit the song and whether it's this and that. So I was kind of searching, we all were searching for who we were and we wanted to be taken probably more seriously than just a strip of pop, mm-hmm. pop band. So mm-hmm. some of the songs on there, we did fight a little bit with the record companies putting darker songs on there. They just wanted 10 more one thing leads to another. You guys didn't want to be, um, you guys didn't want to be the, the pinup boys. You didn't want to be the way Duran Duran was marketed. You guys were, you guys are serious musicians. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have respect for them, but it's just oh, sure they're still they're still here. They're still yeah, they're still doing it. But, yeah, you know, try getting into those pants, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I want to ask you this about sequencing an album. Yeah. Uh, the single "Are We Ourselves" it goes to number fifteen. Great song. CD it comes in at number 10 of 12 that's pretty deep you know into the album for the hit single to be living yeah that refers I guess to Rupert was involved with the sequencing okay. he was in the fight from the record companies we want the single we want the single and he kind of pushed that song back in there mm-hmm. to just sort of be the final question before well, I forget what the last song is on Phantoms but um, he kind of wanted to bury it and tell a different tale but the record company you know they just hear it as 10 different songs and they'll pull out one so it got you pull out a sequence yeah and um there it was it had to stand on its own and you know looking back on it it's a real funky little piece and uh it's cool the slogan itself really has survived the test of time too because people are like you know who are we if we if you're not yourself who the hell are we it's just enough phrase that's grown into its time as well as you're explaining things to me about the song titles and, you know, Saved by Zero, and uh, I'm learning things at, uh, at my age that I wasn't picking up on in your music all these years. Yeah. So that's what's great about music. 
everyone can interpret it a different way. Only the artist can really tell us what's happening, but maybe even the artist, as you said, continues to reinterpret their own words. Exactly. Because in the end, I truly believe that we are antennas for an energy, you know, forget how big or how meaningless you want it to be. That's personal choice. But for me, the stuff is like supposedly the best of me. It's not like you want to go and have a conversation with 10 million people and run out of steam or be boring. But in, in a song, you just put your best sense of what your existence means out there. And if it connects and trades in a language that is universal, then maybe you get some traction there. People start to, then they arrive at it in different points in their lives and you come and go and you realize, whoa, I didn't realize that. And I'm going through the same process too. I look back at some of these songs and I have epiphanies on stage in 2019. Whoa, I never knew, whoa, this song. And then I'm like singing it like it's the, the newest thing I've written. So, yeah. Well, that's, and again, that's, that's what I love about music too, just the rediscovering and the reinterpretation. And when you're explaining all these things that you want, all these feelings that you want to put out there, it's, it's not easy to do that in a four minute pop song or, or rock song, or, you know, I hope you don't take offense to the word pop song, but, um, but that's yeah. difficult. And you, you guys did it. You guys were really able to yeah. do it. I'd say, how long does it take to split an atom? <laughs> Uh, a couple other singles on the album, including uh, Sunshine in the Shade, which is great. just didn't um they didn't they didn't happen in the u.s they just didn't burn up the charts no they, they didn't and you know for one reason or another you could sit back and go why or this and that different the, the record company losing focus or the video wasn't this or the touring that or the there was i don't know there was just a change going on that hadn't mm -hmm. been floating like a cork on the rising tide of the circumstance we may have ended up being different, but I sometimes feel you get held back by your own success mm -hmm. or interpretation. You know, people wanted us to be more girl friendly right. because videos were selling girl music. Like, you know, Target would be full of tartan skirts the next day <laughs> after Madonna's video sure. had tartan skirts in it. Yeah. We just, I just couldn't handle that. And so there was some element of, yeah, no, there, there's nothing. No, there's, yeah, there's nothing wrong with girls in the audience. Certainly, you want that, but you don't want to be just a girl band. Just that, and I'm not accusing that. Uh, you know, the, the, there's some wonderful 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You, you just didn't want to be marketed in that way. Yeah, we didn't want to sexualize it or be trading on, our, on the look of the band. It's the sound of the band that was what we were about. Which, uh, which brings me to the next album, 1986 Walkabout. This is the first time you guys are even on the cover of the album. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was just, uh, I don't know why, maybe we decided to just come out from behind the curtain, like the Wizard of Oz or something. <laughs> and, uh, we, we'd been traveling, toured, been to Australia. So everybody, you know, the movie Walkabout, Nick Roeg's movie Walkabout, I, I'd been watching it. And when we went there, the size of this ginormous continent somewhere down there, just so vast, couldn't even Mm -hmm. believe it. And so spent some time there touring, came back fully inspired with the size of another universe on this planet. And so started writing that and Jamie had been inspired his way and uh, we put that album together. And by that point, the A&R people at the record company had started to sense that there was a musicianship. (laughs) Finally, finally they do. They had something that was a little bit, that could take the wheel around more than one revolution. Okay. So we had some traction and the, you know, the subject matter was, Ooh, it wasn't just, you know, fluff. So they were getting into it. And uh, there was a generation of A&R guys that Steve Moyer, I think his name was really, smart guy who helped us and he fought for us within the record company and, and a couple of other people kind of championed it. So we put that album together um, proudly and then we went off and toured with the Moody Blues for that album in the US, which introduced us to a completely different audience. Yes, that's a different audience from the police for sure. But it was an album that suited their, I mean, it didn't, wasn't exactly like the Moody Blues, right. but it, it, was, it was their version of the modern world for them. And, uh, and again, you, you do have success with the secret separations a hit. It goes top 20 and that's yeah. a fan. That's a fantastic song. One, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorites. Jeanette Obstoy wrote that lyric. Uh, yeah, she's one of the writers listed on it. Yes, yeah, for she, sure. The lyric writer. She gave me that, and I was like, yeah. And it just, I was able to just, that was the first song I'd ever written without writing the lyric. So you didn't she, write any of the lyrics on that. Those words are all hers. In that song, yeah. Actually, I tell a lie. There was Woman on a Train off Phantom's album that she'd written too. And so I'd gotten, that was the first song I'd written, and we enjoyed that. And as, as the singer, you want to have a connection to the words that are coming out of your mouth every night. If you don't feel a connection to it, then you're not going to, 
you're not yeah. going to put any emotion into the delivery, I'm sure. Exactly. Um, and I, I could really understand where she was coming from just as a human being when she wrote that. And uh, the, the idea of when you're not in charge of the words, but you're in charge of the melody and you want to pay the person who wrote the words enough respect, you'd spend a little bit more time making sure that there's a, a, a truth to it and it's not, yeah. just a, not just a bank job. Right. Yeah. You want to deliver it uh, the best yeah. you can. Yeah. And that song, funny enough, was the marriage between yin and yang. That was feminine and masculine. We've had more people say that they met and became an item because of that song. Because of secret separation. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing, but people want to play that at their weddings, which is a... Yeah, because it's... not concept. Right. It's uh, separation, playing a song that has separation in the title when it's your union is... uh, It's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, it's very interesting. But that's what really married us to... um, Pardon the expression, married us to a different head headspace. I sure. think with, with an audience, and uh, that's one song I'm really proud of. It's a great one, so you should yeah, be. You no, know, it's a it's not as rocky as some of our other stuff. You know, it's a million miles away from Red Skies, mm-hmm. but it just had another aspect. You know, well, that's what that's what's great because I you know I do look. I like a band like ACDC, but some people and the Ramones, but some people would say. All their songs sound the same. They don't, but people would say that. Yeah. Your catalog of songs, when you go see you in concert, it's it's so varied the the sounds and textures in, in all the songs, and it, uh, it it's really well rounded. And uh, you know, you guys uh, you guys are great. Yeah, I think that's to stop us from falling asleep at our you know on the wheel because we like so many different things. Mm-hmm. Us, you know, five of us all have different musical tastes and we come together and we bring those different tastes and we see how it could fit in our world. And it yeah. leads us into, you know, there's many colors in the, in the rainbow. And so we try and use all the colors, not just black and white, you know. Built for the Future is the second single. It just doesn't resonate yeah. with the people. Who's picking the singles? Are you guys picking the singles? Is the record company? Is Rupert? Record company. Would that have been your choice for the second single? Maybe not. All right. Maybe not. I wanted I Will to be the single off of um, the Phantoms album. All I know this is the red in your eyes. Hidden secret, we are not supposed to cry. Similar we are 
wanted. Uh, I can't even remember what else there was on on uh, Walkabout. Maybe I should listen to my own music a bit more. Well, how, I mean, <laughs> that that how often do do you actually go back and listen to your own albums? I wouldn't I wouldn't imagine that you that you do that. No, before a tour. Okay, yeah, just to get reacquainted. Uh, yeah. Your your music's hard to find on CD. I mean, I think a lot of it might be out of print. It's um. Well, it's yeah, it's 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 hard to get. We have a lot of. If you come to a show, you'll see a table where we have. We we own Shattered Room now. Okay, we good. Own Calm Animals, and we have an anthology. We make it's more lucrative for us to keep it's the Disney trick. Okay. Keep the demand great and the supply. And then you just keep it milking out. That was working great until the tour was canceled. Right. So, so now we're like looking stupid. We've got it now. We've got to get it out there in some way. So in a meaningful way. That so, so people come to the tour right now and they go to the merch and they see these CDs that they can't find anywhere and they immediately buy them up. Cause they're like, Oh, I can't find this. I got to get it tonight. Yeah, exactly. And then you know, we kind of maybe miss up. We don't press press enough that we mm-hmm. we ought to. And we sell out pretty early in the tour. Then to try and get them by the time the tour's finished. Yeah, ship to bed. Try to get them shipped back to where wherever you guys are on the road is difficult. Yeah, we're not here because we're great businessmen. <laughs> uh, well, you're here for other reasons, and that's why we're yeah. talking to you. Then you do a live album. You use you Padgham. You probably didn't. Did you meet him during the police tour? Is that how you got acquainted uh, with him? No, but he learned about us because he was a protege of uh, Rupert Hine. Oh, okay. He, he worked at Farmyard Studios, which is where we made the Rupert Hine records. And so I think we met there. And then he was suggested as producer by the Steve Moyer, mm-hmm. who was that A&R guy who kind of understood what the fix was about. And so basically, though, it was a crafty trick because they knew that the shuttered room deal was running out and they wanted to get Red Skies, which was their like their little evergreen from our first record. They wanted us to re-record that. Yeah, that kicks off the album. Yeah, so we recorded it without thinking, oh, no, we're giving them the rights to a whole different longevity of the song. But we did. And then for us, it was, they said, put three new songs on there. And then we also went out and uh, recorded two live shows in Canada, one in Montreal and one in Toronto with the the, the studio mobile. Okay. Put that together and he, he mixed it all. So Hugh came in and we mixed that at the Genesis studio, Ridge Farm, 
which was talk about merchandising. I tell you, we <laughs> we were in a studio where we saw the vaults where the Genesis merch machine was in. It must have been it, it, band member coming in grabbing wads of cash out of this vault. It was like I was like, that's how we should have done. <laughs> And of course, you you Padgham worked with uh, Genesis on on the big uh, yeah. the big eighties albums. Um, yeah. There's a the single off of the live album is "Don't Be Scared." I mean, I'm going to talk about two songs here in a minute, but don't be scared. That's one of those ones. It's such a great song. It it almost angers me that people uh, don't know this or that it wasn't a hit. It's so yeah. good. Yeah, it is a great, great song. That was a lyric by Adam in the band. And uh, I love that song too. And I think that, okay, singles are a way to post the band, you know, attention to the band. Right. And get, you know, gain more fans. But looking back at it from this place, it's like nice to know there are a few surprises still to discover. No, that's true. Has, that's a good way to look at it. Hasn't been too oversold and too well trodden. There's still a few nuggets out there that, and I, I discover them too. There are my, some of my favorite songs are the ones that never really made a noise. Yeah. Uh, you're a positive person. It's, it comes through. Yeah, you gotta be. You gotta be. Otherwise, you know, I don't know. I don't ask anyone for anything. So why would I expect anything from anyone? That's a good way to look at it. So, 1989, Calm Animals. Rupert is. Uh, you 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 take a break from Rupert, or he wasn't available. So you're yeah. working with William Whitman. Yeah, we we went through a thing where I was starting to feel that we needed to explore um, some other knives in the drawer. Maybe mm -hmm. um, we learned enough about that style of music and I started playing guitar and writing songs on guitar up, up to that point I'd been pretty much just using piano to carve out things and then handing it over to the rest of the guys for them to turn it into fixed music because gotcha. they see that they grow the flowers from um, the, the and you trust them you trust them you you hand it over to them and you trust the guys so much that they're going to do the right thing by you totally I mean it's not the right thing until they've done it okay me. It was then. So, you know, as I grew older, I learned how to do things for myself a bit. But then I, I didn't realize how tight of a unit you guys really are, because, you know, you hear about some bands where they don't even like each other and they still go out and, and play the hits. And, yeah. and I, I'm really enjoying knowing behind the scenes that that's not the case with the fix. Yeah, no, a, it really is a brotherhood uh, and it is true love. And family, and there's some guy. The loyalty, if 
of the guys to me and me to them. Sometimes it shames me that I've even moved to America. But I, you know, I was so impassioned by what this country was, still is. Infuriates me that such a beautiful place could be in such shit right now. But yeah, it's a little insane. It's, it's a lot about. insane. Yeah, I'm still pumping it out. But um, yeah, they they keep it together. They're like the wheels on the bus. Yeah, that's and, cool. Uh, I like I like that you have those guys. Yeah. So okay. I. So I did interrupt you. We got William Whitman. You got a new label. This album was released on RCA. What happened with MCA? Yeah, MCA were getting a little. Uh, Irving Azoff left. Okay. Myron Roth became the president and they were kind of just shuffling numbers. At this point, the fix was just becoming just furniture in the office. The other generation, oh yeah, yeah, nothing. You know, it's the whole new, newest is the best. Yeah. It, it happens all the time. Yeah. Not that we expected any respect, but you kind of have to fight for your corner. We're 24 seven us, not just two hours of board meeting. So we had to fight. And then luckily enough, this um, chap, William Whitman, who had been working with um, Cindy Lauper and uh, Lauper, uh, yeah, the Hooters, yeah. Patty Smythe. Yeah, he came along and had been signed as an A&R guy to BMG under Bob Buziak. And they were like, this is the only record I want to make. Bill, Bill Whitman, William Whitman said that. Mm -hmm. I was like, he was courting us and he came in seeing the band as it was then, not as it was before, even though he'd heard the records. And I was writing songs on guitar. And he came in and brought a real attention to detail that taught me guitar writing, okay. guitar writing, and the whole history of that. And that increased the relationship that I had with Jamie because Jamie was very unthreatened by it. Like a true talented person is never threatened by someone coming in. He's going to just take it and make it better. Right. And taught me a lot. And the songs reflected something that I hadn't discovered yet about myself. So um, William Whitman allowed it. We spent a year just writing, going to different places. And then we, we finally ended up making that record in Montserrat, which was a huge treat. And that's Air Studios? Air Studios. Was it as beautiful as everyone always says it is in interviews? I always hear everyone just says it's amazing. It is. It is. I wish I was there now. But Air Studios isn't there anymore, is it? No, no, that got wiped out by in, her uh, Hurricane Hugo. Yeah, sad. Yeah, very sad. But the uh, the building is still there, but apparently the floors just trashed and everything. So shame. Um, but William was amazing. He's he had the same gift as Rupert is attention to detail, and he was a little bit more vocal in his opinion okay which I, I liked I kind of some of the guys in the band found it a little intrusive to the style which did shift the band's headspace a little bit but i was really enjoying the sound change and i was also as we were becoming a much better band live it was getting rockier and as i you know, it gave me a chance to come away from the, doing the puppet show with my hands and pick up a guitar <laughs> and do something do, different, do something different. Maybe I was thinking, you know, I just want to play guitar for a while on stage. So maybe you needed to hide behind something a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And we grew into that and we made that record and I really enjoy it. But looking back, that's one of my favorite fixed records too. It has, a, it has a kind of a, a tale that's, 
beyond just the ego of where we'd been, what had happened to us, and the sort of early machinations of spirit. Mm-hmm. This was actually the planet, the spirit of the planet coming through a bit, which collided with the whole Earth day and was the first sounds of climate consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to pick up on that, and I, I was really enjoying the kind of naturalistic element to it. And then this is the album that, that you're leaving the decade too. This is what you're. This is your last album of the '80s. The '80s are, are leaving, and um, the the single "Driven Out." Another phenomenal song that deserves to be more well known. I mean, it was it may you know it went it was big on mainstream rock radio, but um, it's it's just a killer. I don't know how else to say it. So good. Yeah, it just connects. It's um, a real connection point. I think it's you know, my dad used to say, never underestimate the intelligence of the of the public, because. It'll bring, I don't know what business, well, he was a social into political science. Mm-hmm. So he was, if you want to bring a certain kind of person to your point of view, you have to respect who they are. So that's what fixed music is to us. We kind of put out there, so speaking to our own already. I'm not, I don't really want to criticize anyone for being different. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, there's enough of that going on. Sure. So that song brought in a, a concern that was already going on. So I was tapping into just trying to be soundboard for something that was in my world changing and very much needed. And that's how I express it through a song. And so that connected with some people. And today it's still a lot of people. When we play that song live, it gets as much noise as one thing leads to another because people are feeling it so yep. passionately. And they're excited because they're, you're, you're playing a song that, that's personal to them. Like they, you know, when, when you're in the audience at a show and the band plays a song that you feel is your, that's my personal favorite. And then the other people around are cheering too. Then you're like, oh, this is my group. These are my people. Yeah, exactly. The weirdest thing is that we have two songs that have been chosen by English. I mean, I want to say professors because it makes it sound good, but they teach courses. Okay. courses or philosophy courses at university, and they use Driven Out as one of them, and the other one is Letter to Both Sides.
pride is a sin and I'm going to sin right now because I'm quite proud, quite proud of the fact that those two songs have been used to just show a generation, you know, what writing can be about in a, whatever way they, mm-hmm. they teach it or something. But I'm like, Oh, those are kind of good. Well, if you don't have pride about a song, then what, what emotion would you have that you would feel wouldn't be a sin that would yeah, be okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always messes me up. Pride is a sin. I'm like, Oh God, you know, but I'm grateful then. Grateful then. That's a good word. Grateful. Grateful. That's the new pride. Uh, Another song on Calm Animals, Precious Stone. Your vocals are spectacular on this one. I danced in the surf at the edge of an ocean. Could have been someone else. Could have been anything at all. Don't deny that you ask yourself. How do you weigh in this precious stone? Oh, well, I stumbled on a floor in the order. Unwrap the gift, spread the sheet to the borders. There's no virtue if there's no sin. And drove me mm-hmm. he wanted something out of that and he he we kept coming at it he wouldn't you know i only sing the song three times a day kind of thing when i'm in it because it's as much as you can do to really summon up the spirit okay but we were doing the final production of that at record plant and every day for about three weeks he made me go down and sing that song three <laughs> three day you know three times a day till he was happy Till he and was I, happy. Like obsession beyond, but I actually enjoyed it. I would walk because I was living in Manhattan, and I'd walk down to Record Plant Studio and do my song and back out. It was almost like going to the gym. And I every day the experience, the experience of living in New York, very claustrophobic during a heat wave, very oppressive feeling, trying to picture this beautiful planet that's the jewel that's everything is flowing and uh you know your kind of confirmation of life as part of something bigger and it was like and the irony kept and i kept trying to fight for it and so there was a plaintive side to it and i kept thinking about jimmy cliff and many rivers to cross as my kind of go-to plaintive song okay but enough Years later on stage, I can actually, during the coda, I start to sing this Many Rivers to Cross at the end of it. And it's like, whoa, where did that come from? And I realized now there's like the element of that, which was a song sung in Jamaica. And we recorded the original version of that in Montserrat. So there was a whole Caribbean thing right. going on. I'm just giving you some. Yeah, you know, you're almost having an out-of-body experience on, on stage. Yeah. And I love New York, but at that point, I was starting to think, Jesus, New York in July or is during a heat wave? <laughs> imagine um, it during a pandemic and a heat wave. Yeah. 
how does the band feel when you, when you know, you got a new producer, new record label, go to Montserrat how, and, and, and the album comes out and it doesn't, um, uh, it doesn't do what you had hoped it to do. What, how do you guys stay positive and how do you like, you know, a lot of bands would just cash it in, you know, be yeah. like this, what do we have to do to, uh, to get some airplay? How did you guys feel? What, what did you, was there any of that from any of the band members or did you just guys yeah. stay focused? It was disappointing because you've spent a year, 18 months, two years putting everything you've got into this album. But then you being philosophical, the times had changed. Radio was slightly different. People were, there was an expectation to what the fix was. Mm-hmm. By the time reached the beach, had caught up with everyone. And then when you suddenly appear and you're different from what they've known you as. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's almost you get blinded by, you don't see things in the same way. So they, it got missed. And again, we weren't, you'd never expect anything, hope for everything. And there's this disappointment to right. it. But I think we were philosophical about it and um, we kept writing and, and that solid relationship that we had, we realized that um, disappointment goes with joy. It's the, the other side of it. You can't have one without the other. And so we, we were able to use our reserves of, of wisdom and togetherness to say, well, we do it for us and kept us going. And then they wanted to do another record as, you know, as we'll get to. So it was, it was a sh- We did a great tour though. That tour for the Calm Animals tour was my favorite tour that we ever did. And were you, uh, were you in support? Were you headlining? We were headlining and we were just, you know, we were getting good numbers in yeah. live um, but we weren't fully what people expected because they were thinking, oh, we've seen them in the video and where's the suit? By this point, my hair had like, I hadn't cut my hair since 1984. <laughs> this was like 1989. It was like dragging on the floor. And I was just like completely shamaning out with whatever piece of bangle or jewelry I could cover <laughs> it, <laughs> you know. And so. So you kind of had, you kind of had to win people over every night even yeah. though they were familiar with you or else they wouldn't have bought a ticket, they're coming yeah. in and then, but that must be a great feeling too at the end of the night when you guys, everyone's on your side, you've, you've, you've brought them, you know, yeah. to the end of the line. Yeah. I always remember something, you know, it's a little weird. When Salvador Dali was asked why he had that weird mustache. Right. And he, do you know the answer, right? He I goes, don't know oh. the answer. So he goes, I wear this, Mustache, so that people are so intrigued by the mustache when they're looking at me that they're looking at that whilst I'm looking at them in the eyes. <laughs> That's so, a good answer. And so the whole change of look that we had whilst we were on stage was people were like looking at like what, and you could see the look of who's that? Yeah. Is that him? And it just gives you a perspective that is just like, well, you could be anyone right now. And you are anyone. You are everyone. Yeah. There's another kind of out-of-body experience. It just allows you to dissipate. It's like if you showed up to see the Ramones and they were wearing three-piece suits. Yeah. You'd be like, what's going on? Yeah, it's shock value. You've got to freak people out. I mean, we didn't go as far as we could, but there's definitely a bit of that going on. Right. Burying the ghosts of that sort of 80s chrome good time thing. The times are different then. The politics have changed. People's... There was burnout. There was 
oh, shit, you mean I got to pay for this credit card that I had? You know, all the easy credit of the 80s was right. grinding down and people were like pinching. And so and we'd been on tours around the Rust Belt. We'd seen upper New York towns closing down, just Rust and people, villages closing and then people migrating to California. Because when we were there in California in the early 80s, it was kind of, there was a lot of empty space mm -hmm. and the towns were smaller, including Santa Cruz. I mean, when I came back, I was like, whoa, it's grown. California really took the starving masses of the East Coast. Yes, it did. That period. And so that was an interesting um, time. It wasn't great, but it was an interesting time. So we enter the 90s, 1991, with an album called Inc., uh, you use multiple producers on this album, including uh, William Whitman and Rupert Hine. Yeah. Um, for me, I always feel like uh, uh, when an album has multiple producers, sometimes there's not a cohesiveness to it. Yeah, and exactly. uh, what was the what was the thought process of using multiple producers for you guys? That was confusing. Um, we'd started off with William Whitman. We ha also had a management change. Slightly, but there was a guy called Alan Kovac who was a big player in the music business on the West Coast. He managed Richard Marks, and he was trying to start a new label called Impact. Okay. He managed to negotiate us off of BMG to bring us back to MCA because yes. for MCA, it was like, we'll get, we'll get the fix back. We'll get Myron Roth. We'll get one over on BMG. Woo! <laughs> They're back. Richard Palmisi was – so they won us back but by proxy through impact. Okay. You know, in the end, and there was ridiculous amounts of money flying around of which I was a bit disconnected from. And, um, all of a sudden ink is for MCA again. Um, he had different views of how the album should sound. He wanted some writing to be more current than this. So we, I met um, a writer called Scott Cutler who'd written Torn for Natalie Imbruglia or went on to write. Okay. We hooked up and wrote some songs together, How Much Is Enough. Um, basically, it was just me writing with some young guns from L.A. who had different chops. And is the band okay with you writing yeah, outside the band? Not really. It was a little bit of, you know, my Yoko leaves to go to L.A. To okay. This is May vibe. And so it was a little tight, but they managed to, we managed to salvage it. And the guys were like, okay, well, we'll do this and we'll see what happens and we'll, we'll put it out. And so the album is a little of a bit of a Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And then Rupert picked up on a song. I wrote some other guys, Sturkin and Rogers, um, all the best things are free.
wrote that with some guys in Jersey. All I know is my air miles were like, I was <laughs> the place. And I was enjoying that, actually. I was enjoying the experience of writing songs with other people. Forget that it was a fixed project, but I really enjoyed the writing, you know, and just meeting new people. Right. So that was good. But yeah, um, when you're in a band and you're doing that, like if you're doing a solo album, that's cool. But yeah, I, I was wondering if the band was like, what's going yeah. on? Yeah, and I felt it was a bit of a risk, but I was happy to take it. And then mm-hmm. so, you know, when the album came out, we had How Much Is Enough, which was a pretty loaded song that survived the title. And, the, you know, the poetry of it is, woo, good. The, produ- the-, the production on that one sounds, I mean, we're in 1991, but that has a very big 80s production sound to it. it yeah, very L.A. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Rick, Rick, uh, we recorded that up at... Uh, some Hollywood studio up on West Hollywood there. And then the follow-up was uh, No One Has to Cry, another great song. As I wake today, same as yesterday, I get in my car before I turn my wheels. There's so much to say. Who's got time to listen? Fulfill our dreams. Shame is left unseen Why should someone lose So that I get by Why should someone pay Yeah, yeah, good songs. Um, again, the disconnect with radio, slightly grunge was kind of gaining yeah. ground. That's the story in 1991. Yeah, so we that, and then by the end of that, I was like taking it on the chin. I felt like it was my call that had gone. I gambled the farm at the casino. Of, so you were feeling re- you were feeling responsible for the yeah, uh, yeah. lack of and, success, maybe. Yeah, and then I started to look at the manager who'd done the deal with the thing. I was like, oh, you guys, we've all dropped the ball here. You're supposed to, you know, supposed to have been a a leap of faith and a much bigger project, but it didn't happen. So we decided to just, we'd been touring in Germany. We were touring in Germany up to 92. And the life side of it was great because we, Germany is great because they look at you as a catalog, not just as your last hit. That's good. And so we came there and we had a really good, acceptance for being fixed music is this like bmw is this so we had a good sense of who we were and they were very gracious so it kept us going and then in 92 i think the guys in the band had babies that were being born i already had my second kid and so it was time for a little break yeah time for diaper duty so we took a break about seven years until the next album elemental comes out yeah Exactly, which was, um, we decided at that point, if we were going to make a record, we were going to trade completely differently. We'd be happy. We're going to be all equal financial partners. We were going to pay for it ourselves and just put in some, the brotherhood would come in and work again as an equal partnership. Good deal. So we did. We rented an apartment in um, London, put all our gear in there, 
and started making noise to the wee small hours of the morning until there was a ring on the doorbell. Like a bunch of teenagers. Yeah, and there was a guy who told us, do you mind turning it down? My baby can't sleep. And it was Glenn Matlock, the bass player from the Sex Pistols, telling me to turn down. I was like, woo! That was so funny. That's a so, great story. Yeah, so we yeah, we made that record. And um, by the time we started to get ready to mix it, um, there was a company called CMC, which was a spin-off of BMG. Yeah, they were giving a lot of... Um I'll say veteran artists, uh, deals back then, sticks yeah. and, and people. Yeah. yeah so yeah. They, they came and gave us a nice deal. Good. And the deal was for a studio record and then a kind of a revisit of our old hits recorded acoustically. And that would be, uh, 10, 11, Woodland, 10, 11 Woodland. There you go. Dress of the studio in Nashville. Okay. And we went down and had, I was an amazing experience actually to learn how to make a record old school, acoustic no you know the only person that felt panicky was rupert because he couldn't have his synthesizers <laughs> uh, but once we told him he was playing liberace's piano and playing such and such and b3 he was, he was he was good with it yeah, he was great with it and so we made a record and uh learned mic positioning and the sound of the studio i love the sound of that record yeah. i love the, the nature of it um, the only issue was that we didn't re-record Deeper and deeper, one thing leads to another, Red Skies. We didn't do it in that terms because I figured, oh, we're not going to milk the fans for yet another re-record of this. We should have done because what Tom Lipsky did then was just find some live outtake just so that he could put it on the cover and tag it on. Tag it on there. He just ruined the, you know, it's like ruined the vibe. Yeah. But if you take the other songs for themselves as they are, I really enjoy that. And uh, back to Elemental, the song that I love on that, Is That It, is is such a classic, fixed-sounding song. Promises like plates in a Greek restaurant Go through the motions, but you know that you can't like the smell of perfume coming from a glam magazine You wear your heart where it cannot be seen Is that it after all? You're the best I'm the boy I'm a slave to your trade And my refundable That was a good little... Uh... A little tune that one 2003 want that life another yeah. five-year break you guys are still putting out great music uh you don't have to you don't have to prove yourself is one that i love
Yeah. And that, we, that, that sounds like, um, like the fixed theme song. Cause at yeah. this point you don't have anything to prove. Yeah, exactly. I was just going through, uh, was living in New York and then heading off to France. And we recorded that in Spain. Um, there was a lot of, it was actually a re-recording of an album. We tried to put it together. It was called No, no Hollywood Ending. Okay. That was the first incarnation of that album. We toured it, we recorded it in New Jersey after a tour, and it was a bit shabby in its, we had Roy Sicala, the engineer, great engineer, but we ourselves are a little, we're missing a, a groove. We had a, we had a live bass player called Chris Tate with us at the time. Okay. He was great at interpreting what had already been done. Dan was taking a hiatus. Yeah, he had some health issues okay. and he had uh, taken a break. And so we were making that record and I, I just felt that the pocket to sort of play bass alongside Adam to get a kind of space groove, you have to be a certain kind of player. And so we didn't quite have that. So we brought in uh, Gary Tibbs, who'd been with Roxy Music and Adam Ant, and he fit the the pocket to re-record this record the song's already written and so gary again masterful bass player who could play someone else's part that was written better than the original kind of thing in a way that's so a good he deal really elevated that groove understood adam's nuances and brought that up so that album was that but personality wise bass players fitting in with us dan is such an amazing musician and soul that we were just couldn't quite work live, you know, mm -hmm. something just, it wasn't the brotherhood live. It was just like having a, you know, it's just somebody who didn't quite get us. Yeah. And on stage, Dan, he even, he stands in the back very close to Adam and yeah. he's locked into that position for the yeah. show. Yeah. He's locked. He, you know, if Adam's kind of thinking something, Dan will pick it out of mm -hmm. the air and think with him so that they always like fish. They groove like fish. That's the best rhythm section to have. Yeah, exactly. So between uh, between 2011 and 2012, you do three solo albums. You do Mayfly in 2005, The Returning Sun in 2007, and Solar Minimum in 2009. Yeah. Were, were you guys, uh, were, were, were the Fix doing shows during that period, or were you on an, an extended hiatus? We were doing shows... Um, regular tours up until 2004. Okay. And then we started becoming weekend warriors and just doing sort of high price weekends. Cause I was living in France at the time. Okay. So it was hard to, I was trying to get a farm started, a self-sustaining farm with a bed and breakfast. And I had animals, I had commitments to nature as it were. And, and what, so, what made you go that route? 9-11 living in New York. Oh, okay. Okay. The system was all right. I, think, that, I understand now. I don't even know how to feed myself or anything. So, you know, I just wanted to get as far away as I could. So okay. I bought some land in the middle of nowhere. And that's it. And it took about gentleman farming. It was idiot farming. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned with blisters and the old guys around me who had been around since before fertilizers mm -hmm. taught me how to really farm organically without chemicals and how to do it with blood, sweat, and equity and to think small, don't go too big. Mm -hmm. And I managed to do it and we were able to feed a bed and breakfast. That's cool. It was great. But and the relationship was 
was not good with my partner there. So it was work, 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 drink, 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 drink. So it was like very French experience. <laughs> and, and having a French mother, it was like kind of, um, I kind of felt at home, but also really realized why I left home. Yeah. Same time. <laughs> yeah. So that was that. And then, uh, so I had a lot of time in my studio at the farm at nights. Okay. So tinkling and I recorded this album, these re- albums there. Um, and there's great tunes on these may fly when push comes to shove. solid yeah and um and so what is the uh we already talked about beautiful friction but what was uh what was the deciding factor when you guys all decided hey i think it's time it's time for some fix yeah we rupert in the band had introduced us to nick jackson this guy said hey he's a huge fix fan canadian guy who's really amazingly um clever with computers and he's built a studio and he could help us record. So he provided a place for us. We went up there and we just wrote first song, which is what God. What God does God believe in? What God believes in me? What God minds over matter? What God matters to me What man's imagination Moves still with each breath What man lies in stagnation Between his life and death And we just went, oh, we're back. Yeah. Boom. That was the foundation of Beautiful Friction. And then we were going, we just kept writing, writing, writing in blocks of three or four songs. We were so encouraged by just the life that we were all living, the wisdom. And there's no one in this band that's going to call anyone else uh, an asshole or an idiot because we all know what it, what it is to yeah. live make mistakes but when you come back with the fruit of a mistake that's the best ingredient for music you know well this uh this is uh this is as a fan i'm excited to hear the the next fix album that you teased that's uh 
is that now is that a finished product you're just waiting yeah I, i'm not going to give you the title don't tell I, me anything I, I like to be surprised um was the artwork done by the same gentleman who did beautiful friction yeah all right that's all i need to know yeah to know that it's going to be something great yeah it's uh it's pretty pretty awesome now sigh I want to thank you because you said you'd give me 45 minutes or an hour and we've been going for almost two hours. Oh, wow. So I hope, uh, I hope I didn't keep you from something too important. No, I'm actually on a, in the middle of a five day fast right now. So I don't have any cooking to do or <laughs> just drinking green juice. All right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but you're not making the family do this. This is just your thing. Yeah. Just me and the, and Tisha, my girlfriend, the kids are with their father this week. So we set aside this. Okay. Fast to just detox. So now when you go out and you ride your bike in the heat, when you're, when you're fasting, that sounds dangerous to me. <laughs> yeah. I just do it real early in the morning. All right. Good. Drink a quart of water. Okay. We need you. We need you, Cy. Don't, uh, <laughs> stay with us. Um, uh, everyone, the new solo album by Cy Kernan is called Lockdown. You can get it, you know, Amazon, you can digitally download it there. You can stream it. You can go to iTunes, but uh, seek that out. It's a, it's a very cool atmospheric album. And when you're, you're in lockdown, it's the perfect album to just throw some headphones on, turn down the lights, maybe have some wine. And uh, it's a really cool album. So Cy, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. The next time the fix comes through Los Angeles, I hope to say hi to you in person. Yes, ma'am. We will be um, looking forward to it as a band and me personally. Great. I can't play the Canyon Club again. Jones in for a gig. Yes, please. So hopefully we get through this soon and we'll see you in 2021. Yeah, stay safe. You too, Cy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Uh